due to the technical difficulties that we're experiencing today, you're not going to have all of the verses on the screens as we normally have. And for some of you, that might be a blessing because you really need to have your Bibles open. You need to be turning to these places as well as looking at them on the screen. But I'm going to be looking at a variety of verses today. Not all of them will I take time for you to turn to, so sometimes you might need to just listen. But I do want you to begin by turning to Psalm 33 as I address the second pillar of Calvary Bible Church, which is Christ-exalting song worship. As you know, we've stepped away from our verse-by-verse exposition of John's Gospel to look at our five pillars here for a few Sundays as we endeavor to move ahead with some of the exciting things we see God doing in our midst. As you look at Psalm 33, we just read it a few minutes ago. Notice again the first three verses. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. Here we see God exhorts the righteous to sing because music gives expression to the doxologies of our heart. And too often we rejoice in temporal things rather than eternal things. Too often we are sour and sullen and critical, complaining people which betrays the barren nature of our soul and the demanding nature of our heart. But God loves to hear his people sing. And he loves for us to sing the songs of redemption. Because, dear friends, as believers, we are living a celebration of God's grace. And this calls for singing. Will you notice he says, sing to him a new song. This does not refer to a song that has never been sung before. But rather one that captures afresh the majesty and glory of God that has been recently demonstrated in our life, one that that would fully summarize some magnificent truth of God's work, something that has gripped our heart, perhaps even of late. A new song celebrates a new act of God's faithfulness, a new act of His mercy and His love. And my, how many of those we have to sing every day. He also says, play skillfully with a shout of joy, which literally means make it sound beautiful. By the way, these are the same words used to describe David's playing skills when he played in the court of King Saul in 1 Samuel 16. Now, why all of the praise? Well, notice verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright. In other words, it is utterly faithful and true. The Lord our God is without deception. He is faithful and he is true. And it goes on to say, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He's faithful in all that he does, all that he has promised to all those that he loves. Think of all of the things that that includes in our life, today and in the future. So today we are looking at the second foundational pillar of Calvary Bible Church, 
as we are about to see, God loves music. He loves for his people to sing praises to him. And he has organized and regulated music in some very interesting ways so that it will be honoring to him. And it's for this reason that the second pillar of Calvary Bible Church is what we call Christ-exalting song worship. I think you have a handout that that should, be, that, that should describe this. Christ-exalting song worship that is passionate and pure in doctrine. And I would tend to call it transcendent worship, didactic hymnody, and training musicians. We're going to see all of this as we unveil some of these truths here this morning. My outline to you is very simple. We're going to look at music in the Old Testament, secondly, music in the New Testament, and thirdly, music in Calvary Bible Church. So let's go back to the ancient days in the Old Testament. The first musician, according to Scripture, according to Genesis 4.21, was a man named Jubal. And there in that text we read that he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And it's interesting that his role as a, as a musician was equal to his brother Jabal, who was a herdsman, and his other brother Tubal-Cain, who was a smith. In the early days of human history, we see that music was basically an organic part of, of daily living. It was used to accompany virtually every aspect of human life, every concern from birth to death. In the days of the patriarchs and the judges, we can see how its primary function was social merrymaking, but also we see that it was used in times of, of feasting, uh, times of rejoicing, times of, of, uh, of worship and marriage, it was also used to celebrate great military victories. There were even marching songs. It was used at the enthronement of a king, even at times of farewell. We read of music being used during dirges and laments. It was used for work. In fact, there is the song of the well digger in Numbers 21. There were songs for the harvesters of the vineyard. It was even used in association with a military advance to terrify the enemy, as we would read, for example, in Judges 7. By the way, wouldn't you love to be able to hear the sound of the seven priests playing the seven trumpets, the seven shofars, followed by the shout of all the people that God used to destroy the mighty fortress of Jericho? My grandkids asked me not too long ago, Papa, what are you going to ask God when we, you get to heaven? I thought, that's a great question. And I started rattling off some things, and this is one of them. It's like, Lord, I would really like to hear what that sounded like. Now, I don't know if he will do that or not. But, but anyway, we see music and the noise of various instruments all through the Old Testament. Women played a very important part in the performance of music, we read about them singing and dancing for joy to the uh, accompaniment of various percussion instruments. You will remember that Miriam led the women in a hymn of thanksgiving after that glorious, miraculous crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus uh, 15. And then Deborah joined with Barak in singing 
uh, a song of victory in Judges 5. And we read how women celebrated David's victory over the Philistines in 1 Samuel 18. And many years later, in the account of the return from exile in Babylon, we read of both male and female singers in Nehemiah 7. But ancient music was primarily utilitarian or functional, and it was little more than noise-making. It's hard to know with any certainty uh, the timbre of the music, uh, which is the, 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 the tone quality of the singing that was used in the Old Testament. But it was probably similar to the, the sounds that we do know about in, in Babylonia and Assyria. And that was basically music that was just loud and really noisy. Because most of the ancient pagans believed that the only way you could get God's attention was by loud praying and singing. We see a similar attitude among the Jews in Second Chronicles 15, beginning in verse 12. There we read, They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. Verse 14 says, Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. But as we look down through history, there seems to be a gradual refining of music as time went on, um, especially when David came on the scene. You will recall how David played the lyre to soothe Saul's troubled spirit. In fact, the Hebrew songs recorded in the Psalter were accompanied by soft instruments, instruments like the lyre and the harp. Instruments that were soothing, instruments that were aesthetically pleasing. And to be sure, the songs of Israel were motivated to serve and to exalt God, not to get his attention. So the music of ancient Israel gradually became more refined, it gradually became more artistic. But there was never a record of professional musicians until David came on the scene. By the time David came along, Jerusalem was the well-established center of of Israel's worship. That would have been about 950 B.C. And of course, the pomp and the ceremony um, associated with the royal court and the temple required great organization and great skill with the musicians, who, by the way, also had to be very learned theologians. They had to come from the tribe of Levi. For example, in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, we read how out of the sum total of 38,000 Levites that were over the age of 30, 4,000 of them were chosen as musicians to be singers, to be instrumentalists. That's a big choir. That's a big orchestra. According to the Jewish Talmud, uh, a singer was admitted to the Levitical choir at the age of 30 following a five-year apprenticeship. And also during this era of history, the quality of instruments began to improve and new ones were added. As you look at the Psalter, for example, there are 55 psalms which were given to the chief musicians and choir masters of Israel along with instructions pertaining to the various melodies and instruments that were to be used in the accompaniment of those hymns. 
In fact, many psalms have at, as, at their heading various melodic themes that were supposed to be used, s- melodies that were popular of that day. But to be sure, music was very important to David, especially when he became king. You might recall the story in 1 Chronicles 13. David assembled a large group of people. Actually, I believe the text says that all Israel to come together with him to bring the Ark of the Covenant from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. And you may remember the story how the oxen stumbled and, and Uzzah reached out to somehow prevent the ark from falling and God struck him down. And as a result of that, they left the ark at the house of Obed-Edom for three months while David prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. You read about this in First Chronicles 15. And then after that, David assembled a massive group of people, a processional, to go recover the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. And here's what we read in chapter 15 of 1 Chronicles, beginning in verse 16. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy, Verse 24, he went on to say others were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God. And then in verse 28, we read, So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn, trumpets and cymbals, and made loud music on harps and lyres. You may recall that at the end of that text, it talks about how David danced and rejoiced before the ark. So music had a very prominent role in Israel's worship. We also know that David was the original leader of Israel's temple worship. Read about that in 1 Chronicles 25. There we read in the first eight verses that he set apart three men to be the ministers of music. And in that text, we read how that their primary role was to write lyrics under the king's direction that would proclaim the glory and the greatness of God and exhort the people to faith and obedience. These musicians were to understand both the ways as well as the will of God. Only the most capable musicians and the most capable theologians were to be selected as the leaders. In 1 Chronicles 25, verse 7, we read, And their number who were trained in singing to the Lord with their relatives, all who were skillful, was 288. 288. These were 24 groups of 12 singers that matched the 24 orders of the priesthood. Priests that would rotate in participating in the weekday and, and, and Sabbath services as well as special Holy Day services. And according to the Talmud, we read that, quote, there had to be in attendance at least two harps, but no more than six, at least two flutes, but no more than 12, a minimum of two trumpets with no maximum, and a minimum of nine lyres with no maximum. There was only one player with a pair of cymbals, end quote. And that makes sense. One cymbal is typically all you need. 
But I love to envision some of the musical extravagandas of ancient Israel. For example, can you imagine the spectacle of the dedication of Solomon's temple when the glory of the Lord, according to Second Chronicles 7.1, came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then we learn in verse 6 something very interesting. We learn that, quote, the priests stood at their posts and the Levites with the instruments of music to the Lord, which King David had made for giving praise to the Lord. So David had made instruments. Then it adds, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Whenever he gave praise by their means, while the priests on the other side blew trumpets, and all Israel was standing. Talk about a musical tribute. What a magnificent scene that would have been. By the way, We read also in that text that Solomon and the people, in verse 5, offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 122,000 sheep. Thus the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Amazing, isn't it, when you think of the magnitude of that celebration. So we learn that the Old Testament musicians were were highly trained, they were highly organized, they were very skilled in both music as well as theology. Their lives were dedicated to the holiness of God. They were submissive to his word and his will. They were accountable to the priesthood. If I can make this real practical, they didn't let just anybody serve the Lord in this way. I might also add that you never read anything about them giving themselves dove awards every year. None of them tried to conform to the idolatrous cultures around them. None of them would have looked or sounded like the God-hating pagans. That would have been a supreme act of blasphemy punishable by death. None of them were musically and or theologically illiterate. Like many musicians today, not at all. Their musicianship and their music reflected a deep understanding of and a deep love for Yahweh. They knew what it was to fear the Lord. They knew what it was to find their satisfaction and joy in Him. They had a soul-terrifying vision of the one true God. They had seen evidence of His glory. They also had a soul-satisfying experience of deepest reverence and joy because of God's mercy and grace that he had extended to them. So my friends, the music of ancient Israel was, was both transcendent and celebratory because God is transcendent. He is infinitely holy. He is deserving of our praise because his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, we see these heart attitudes reflected in the Psalter. In fact, the Psalter's final Hallel, which consists of five psalms, Psalm 146 through 150, in each case, they begin with the Hebrew word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. And the final psalm, Psalm 150, really serves as the closing doxology for book five as well as the entire Psalter. 
And in Psalm 150, we see how that praise for God, commands to praise God, I should say, was given 13 times. In fact, that psalm tends to elaborate on Psalm 145, verse 21, that reads, My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever. Now, according again to the Jewish Talmud, the celebrants bringing the first fruits to Jerusalem would recite Psalm 150 during their procession. And here's how it goes. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's interesting, the variety of instruments that are depicted here. You have wind instruments, you have stringed instruments, you have percussion instruments. Obviously, God loves instruments. He loves accompaniment. Now, I might also add that harmony was completely foreign to the ancient Israelites. Their music was monophonic, we call it. In other words, it's music that consisted of a single vocal part. It would be much akin to its, its um, shall we say, its musical progeny that we see in the Gregorian chants. So it was more like chants, but it was, it was highly complex because of the various forms of accompaniment and the amazing lyrics of, of Hebrew poetry that rhymed not in sound, but in thought. So we see that God was well pleased to allow various instruments as accompaniments to prayer and praise in the Old Testament. By the way, it was also very important in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and in the intertestamental era of church history. And I might add that there is no reason to assume that God changed his mind in this dispensation of grace and says that somehow instruments are bad in the church. We know that there are people who believe that. In fact, a lot of the early church fathers believed that. They didn't have any musical instruments at all because they were reacting against the Jews. And as you know, many of them hated the Jews, which was wrong. And even to this day, you have various Christian groups that think that instruments are bad. Or maybe not all instruments, but certain instruments. And they all have their preferences. But you can't support any of that biblically. If instrumental accompaniment was used in Old Testament worship, and obviously brought such joy to the Lord, I would ask you, on what basis are they to be considered anathema in New Testament worship? If such a prohibition... Is such a pro- prohibition found in the New Testament, and I would argue that it is not. I won't go into detail on all of this, but may, may I just remind you, in Revelation 5 or 15 and verse 2, we see the saints playing harps before the throne of God. Now, I would humbly ask you, if instrumental accompaniment is permissible in heaven, why wouldn't it be so on earth? The richness of instruments and 
the beautiful complexities of melodies and harmonies and, and rhythms all attest to the glory of God and enhance our worship. Songs without accompaniment, for me at least, like eating food without any spice. Purely a cappella singing is beautiful. I love to do that from time to time. But as other instruments are added, the sounds become even more magnificent. Singing songs without instruments is as blah as creation without color. Beloved, why should we worship the Lord in black and white? It's interesting that the Greek terms salmo and salmos refer to singing a song to the accompaniment of a stringed instrument or instruments played with the fingers. And both of those terms, salmo, which by the way is P-S-A-L-L-O, and salmos, P-S-A-L-M-O-S, both of those terms are used in various New New Testament texts speaking of music and singing. For example, in Ephesians 5 verse 19 we read, speaking to one another in psalms, there's the psalmois, and hymns and spiritual songs, and then it says singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And there you have that Greek term, salantes ente cardia, which literally means to pluck a stringed instrument with the heart. So you see that the Lord loves instruments as well as singing. Now, this brings us to music in the New Testament. Historical evidence points to the fact that the music in the early New Testament church was quite similar to the customs and traditions of the Jewish synagogues, or, or yeah, the Jewish synagogues, which had replaced um, the Jewish temple as a place of worship and learning. We go back to the Jewish Talmud and we can see how that they would chant scripture, they would chant psalms, biblical prayers, spiritual songs. And we also learn that choral singing of the temple was replaced by a single cantor or a layman, C-A-N-T-O-R, who according to tradition had to have the following qualifications. Quote, he had to be well-educated, gifted with a sweet voice, of humble personality, recognized by the community, conversant with scripture and all the prayers. He must not be a rich man, for his prayers should come from his heart, end quote. My great qualifications for a minister of music, right? But we also know that the Greek and the Roman culture had a profound influence on the early church in every way, including music. Unlike the Jews, the Gentile music had nothing to do with praising God. It was purely entertainment. And some Greek philosophers considered music to be cathartic, a force that could could allow the emotions to be channeled in such a way as to help humans acquire some metaphysical knowledge. Of course, that's a bunch of... Gnostic gobbledygook and Christians don't believe in any of those super superstitions. But some of the early Christians, we believe, may have been a bit skeptical about Gentile music being brought into the church for this very reason. But there is nothing in the New Testament record that addresses the kind of singing or instrumental accompaniment or styles of music 
that God either commands or forbids. These are purely matters of Christian liberty, matters of personal preference. But I would hasten to add that Christian liberty must always be regulated by a deep reverence for God's holy character and for his word. Paul addresses this, for example, in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, most New Testament references to music are found in the eschatological visions and prophetic passages, especially in the book of Revelation. But we also see that a flute was used in a wake in Matthew 9. We see that music was associated with the return of the, of the prodigal son in Luke 15. There are five passages in the New Testament that mention music metaphorically. And we know according to Matthew 26 and verse 30 that Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn at the Last Supper, which, by the way, is the only direct account of Jesus singing. Wouldn't you have loved to heard his voice? We know that Paul and Silas sang hymns in, in a jail in Acts 15. And Paul asks that singing be done for the purpose of edification in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 15 and 26. But then, as I read earlier in Ephesians 5, 19, Paul also speaks of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. The psalms here refers to just actually singing songs from the Psalter, as many times we do. Uh, the hymns would be um, music that has more of a, of a, of a th- is more theological in nature, and the spiritual songs would be more experiential in nature. There are several hymns found in the New Testament, texts that clearly depict the, the formal poetic structure common among Hebrew poetic psalms, but they also had a Greek and even a Latin influence. The church has adopted some of them. For example, you're familiar with the Magnificat, which is Mary's hymn of praise in Luke 1, 46 through 45. And then there's the Benedictus in verses 68 through 69. There's the Gloria in Luke 2, 14. But there were also Christological hymns. In other words, hymns in the New Testament that literally give praise to Christ. We see this and we know this from uh, some of the ancient history. This would include the prologue to John's gospel. It also included Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Let me read this hymn. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the divining wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. 
Then there's another hymn in Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6 through 11, which is that great kenosis or that great emptying of Christ during his incarnation. Also in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15 through verse 20, here's how that hymn would go. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Wouldn't it be wonderful to hear what that would have sounded like in the early church? Likewise, 1 Timothy 3.16, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And one more in Hebrews 1, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, as we can see by example, as well as by command, Our songs must be sung for our mutual mutual teaching, admonition, and edification, which ultimately results in, in igniting us, animating us to praising the Lord our God. They must accurately reflect the Word of God and the God of the Word. They must give appropriate expression to our gratitude and praise. They must encourage, instruct, they must warn, they must stir our hearts to faith and obedience. And this leads me to my final section here this morning. What about music here at Calvary Bible Church? What I'm about to share with you is not only the expression of my heart and the elders, but very much the expression of our dear musicians that I work with closely because this does, or this is, by the way, the only other pillar that I'm really in charge of, expository preaching and music. You know, anything that has the potential of bringing glory to God also has great potential to do just the opposite, right? We know that. We know that Satan is a master counterfeiter. He hates Christ. He hates those who belong to Christ. He hates the church. And he will stop at nothing to thwart the purposes of God, destroy his people, rip a church apart, or make it ineffective. We see this all the time. His primary means is through the teaching of false doctrine, what Paul calls doctrines of demons. There are false teachers that teach these things. Most of them, I believe, are unwitting, but many of them are witting, pure charlatans that have a seared conscience. And while Satan's strategies are as multifaceted as they are ingenious and diabolical, 
certainly one of his most effective ways of weakening the church is through so-called Christian music. Unbiblical lyrics, theologically illiterate musicians, many times that are nothing more than prima donnas looking for a, a stage. Much music today is, is just pure entertainment. Music that stirs the emotions but bypasses the mind. Rather than confronting the culture, many prefer to conform to it. And you end up, therefore, with a crowd, not a church. You end up with an event, not a worship service. And the result is a man-centered church versus a God-centered church. With respect to music, the message of many Christian songs today are heavy on emotion and light on truth. If you listen to a lot of the music, especially if you go to the Christian radio station, you kind of get this sense of how we just need to all snuggle up to Jesus. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And frankly, a lot of times you could take Jesus out of the, out of the lyrics and put in your boyfriend or your girlfriend and... It could, you know, you could sing the same thing and much of it is bereft of both spirit and, in truth, and truth that the Father wants us to have when we worship him. So it's for this reason that we have as our second pillar at Calvary Bible Church what we call Christ-exalting song worship that is passionate and pure in doctrine. And there's three categories that I like to have under that. I'll just talk about this briefly in closing this morning. It needs to be, or, or we are, I should say, committed to uh, transcendent worship or surpassing worship. I'll explain that more in a moment. And it needs to be instructive, what I would call didactic hymnity. And then we are also focused on training musicians. So first, as I work with our musicians, as they work with me, and as they all work hard to lead you folks in worshiping our glorious God, we all agree that the music must be transcendent. It must be awe-inspiring. That's what that word means. It must be otherworldly. It must take us beyond the limits of human experience. It must point us to God and his glory. It must point us to the unsearchable riches of Christ and articulate the clear truths of Scripture. Johann Sebastian Bach said, quote, The aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. End quote. So we want our music, in terms of, it, of, its, of its style and its lyrics and even the musicians, to be a vehicle that lifts us up and away from this world. Music that will help transport our souls into the presence of the Most High where we can really fall before his face and give him glory. Musicians, therefore, must be utterly invisible to the people. And that is their prayer, by the way. They must have a proper heart attitude based on an accurate understanding of Scripture. And the lyrics that they choose, the arrangements that they choose, the style that they choose must fulfill Colossians 3, 16 and 17 that I read earlier. As well as music that ultimately frames the exposition of the word. 
that will follow. By the way, as a footnote, style is going to vary by culture and by personal preference. It's going to change a bit every generation. Even a cursory examination of church history will reveal that any change of style is always met with opposition. For example, Bach was chased out of a number of churches because his improvisations were just too worldly. And if you were to hear them today, you would say, my goodness, that's way too highbrow for this place. The 18th century hymn writer Isaac Watts, one of my favorites, was viciously attacked by many church leaders of his day because he tried to make worship music more singable and more celebratory rather than kind of stale and somber. And yet those very hymns are among the most profound and well-beloved of the church today. So musical style is not as important as theological, the theological accuracy of the lyrics. However, I fear that all too often style in most contemporary music and in many churches is determined more by pragmatism than theology. You know, anything to draw a crowd. And as a result, many church worship services are, are heavy on emotionally charged music that panders, frankly, to the God-hating, narcissistic rock culture rather than to the glory of God. And so we try to choose music that is going to fit the mainstream, especially in style, the mainstream of the folks that we have at our church. And even as there was a high view of God and worship in, and music in the Old and New Testament, this should also be the motivation that we have in the church. We want our music along with the rest of our service to facilitate the worship of our God in spirit and truth. We want it to point to Christ. We want believers to be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 24 and 25. We want unbelievers to be, the text says, convicted by all. When they come into the place of worship, we want them to be convicted by all. It goes on to say, and called to account by all. The secrets of his heart disclosed, so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. That's what we want. As we look at our emphasis here at Calvary Bible Church, not only should it be transcendent, but it should be instructive. Our hymnody should be didactic, if you will. Again, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So our lyrics should both express our worship as well as teach it. Teach the great truths of our glorious God. I love to have our children sing these great hymns. I love for them to rehearse the Word of God uh, during the week. It's great to see that happen. And very often, I find my mind, even in the midst of joy or in sorrow, being drawn to some hymn that we sing or some phrase. I think we can all identify with that. That's what music should do. But, of course, the hymns that we sing must be sing singable. 
as well as theologically precise. By the way, since the 20th century, many great hymns were replaced by contemporary praise choruses written by individuals that really had no pastoral training nor theological training. And as a result, many of those songs, and we have a lot of them in our hymn book, are really bereft of any theological substance or, frankly, didactic benefit. They're not really instructive. As I might say, they're as shallow as water on a plate. I hope I don't offend you. That's not my purpose. But let me give you some examples of them. In the garden, love lifted me, standing on the promises, count your blessings, he touched me, soon and very soon, and on it goes. Compare those to a mighty fortress is our God. It is well with my soul. When I survey the wondrous cross, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, oh, love that wilt not let me go, be thou my vision. You see the difference? So our musicians are very careful in the selections that they choose, and I appreciate that. Finally, our third emphasis is on training musicians. We are blessed, folks, with, with great musicians. And some of them, not to embarrass them, but they're quite young. That's great. And some of them are middle young, right? Brian and Pamela, Jerry Ann. Um, but, but seriously, I, as I work with them, especially as I work with, with, with uh, Lucas and Max uh, closely, they, they pick out most of the music. Brian helps as well, and we thank those three guys for their faithfulness in, in doing that. But it's so neat to hear their hearts and, and to hear their passion for truth and how they, they know the text that I'm going to be preaching from and they agonize over the right sequence and the right songs to plug in. And, and then, you know, they, they come together. Um, most of the time, I think you guys get here at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday mornings and they practice during the week. Folks, we really need to thank them because they do a lot of work for us, for the Lord, but they are committed ultimately to the Lord. And it's, it's my joy to try to disciple them, having been trained as a musician myself, to come alongside these guys and, and, and all of the rest of that. We had the whole team over at the house the other night. It was so fun to hear their hearts. And we also have not just Lucas on the piano, Max on the guitar, but we also have Brian that helps wherever Brian is over here with choosing the music and singing. And then, boy, I don't want to want to leave anybody out. We've got Pamela and Jerry Ann that sing and help us. You know, you're the do watts, right? You know, that's what we used to call them, the do watts that that help us here, and we appreciate that so much. And then we've got Mickey that you can't see the little guy on the drums over here in the corner. And then we've got Andrew, and I mean, he can play so many instruments like Lucas, Andrew playing the bass, and um, then we've got uh, Betsy, who wasn't here today, and we've got Madeline, how we thank Madeline for the violin. I keep telling Greg, and by the way, Greg, I think you've got it right here, turn up the violins! I want to hear more of the violins. And I, I just so rejoice in, in these folks and others that come along to help. And then, of course, there's Joseph back there with the sound, and there's Greg over here running around with his little... By the way, he's not playing games. He's adjusting sound on his little iPod or whatever, 
and they're always working to get things, you know, to happen here. And then you got John Mons. What would we do without him to put the lyrics on there so that we can? I mean, it's just a whole team, and I just rejoice in that. But one of the things that that I'm I'm really concerned about. We really need someone to own a new ministry, which would be a children's choir. I've been wanting that as long as I've been here. And if the Lord puts that on your heart, please let me know. We'd love to see that develop. Well, running out of time here. I I want to give you a summary of the music at Calvary Bible Church. I'm going to read it verbatim that's on our website. I've written it in such a way that I think it pretty well covers everything that I've described to you here this morning. God has given us the gift of music to express worship, not to induce it. We are therefore committed to the biblically mandated didactic role of music, not stimulating emotions. While the genre of the music must never detract from the profundity of the lyrics, nor deliberately mimic the depraved music of the lost in an effort to attract them, we are comfortable with a variety of musical styles and instruments. Consistent with Scripture, our priority is not on stylistic preferences as much as the content of the lyrics. We are committed to preserving the great tradition of didactic hymnody of the past, while at the same time singing the doctrinally rich hymns that have been written more recently, all of which are designed to frame the pinnacle of worship, the exposition of the word. Our desire is to uphold a biblical standard of transcendent worship and musical excellence and thus do battle against the encroachment of a world system that seeks to destroy them both. So, thank you musicians and thank all of you that join together in singing praises to God every Sunday and other times when we meet. We're going to close by doing something a little different and you're going to help me here. I'm going to give you two forms of ancient Israelite uh, singing, okay? You don't have to sing, but it would be more of a chant. And by the way, we're going to meet some of these dear people someday. Remember, they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. They were saved on credit, okay, as you might say, but we're going to meet them someday. And first we're going to have a, I I don't know if, if this is, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this or not. You know what? I forgot. We don't have the the computer, do we? Okay. Never mind. Next week, guess what we're going to do? We're going to do that. Because it's really exciting. And you'll get a real sense of what happened in those worship services. So forgive me. I forgot about the computer being broke down. Well, anyway, there you have it. The second pillar. That of... Christ honoring music. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths that, that help us understand what would be pleasing to you. Lord, I thank you for our musicians. I thank you for all of the people who work as a part of this particular ministry. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up someone within our church body who knows and loves you, who knows and loves your word, would be committed to helping organize our children and our youth in music. So Lord, thank you. We give you praise in all things. For Jesus' sake, amen.